we're really grateful to have as a moderator tonight, Mr. Stuart Leavenworth. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Fresno native Stuart Leavenworth is the editorial page editor of the Sacramento Bee. He oversees the paper's daily opinion pages and its Cal that was so wonderful. And its, Cal <laughs> and its California forum section on Sunday. He joined the Bee in 1999 and covered natural resources, energy, and housing before joining the paper's editorial board in 2004. He's won numerous awards, including the National Press Foundation Prize for his coverage of California's water issues. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Stuart Leavenworth. Thank you, and thank you for all coming out tonight. Um, I think this is going to be a lot of fun. And, and thanks to Zocalo for the events it hosts and the, and the work it does in trying to engage people uh, in civic function. We're, we're going to have a strip tease by the poet lawyer. Um, uh, Just a tease. So. Uh, so you know, uh, this was advertised as an evening with the Poet Laureate, and uh, just the other day I found out that um, you're no longer the Poet Laureate. No, I am right now. You are right now? Yes. I thought it ended in May. No. So when does it end? Uh, probably June 15th. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say June 6th. But, uh, <laughs> so then you'll just be another Fresno poet. I'll be Phil. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what everybody calls me anyway, so it's a difference. So, Fresno poet. Now, um, some of us would think that if you could throw a stone out there, you might hit a Fresno poet. In this crowd, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, really, how many, how many poets have you, how many working poets have you helped teach or train or here in Fresno? you have an estimate? More than a squad and less than a division. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I really don't. It's a uh, lot, though. You know, a lot of them... Uh, I think I discouraged more than I helped. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, that was my job. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, you get... You get uh, 15, 20 people in a class, and not all of them are going to become poets. There's a lot of them. You know, there's, there's this term, the Fresno poets. It's not like I'm in Sacramento, there's a Sacramento poets, or the Chico poets, or the Visalia poets. There's... They had their chance. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they could have hired me, they didn't. <laughs> so. I'm, I'm already falling down on my job. I'm supposed to be introducing you. So I think that it, in normally an introduction means like talking about the awards you've won, two National Book Awards, National Book Circle, uh, Critics Circle Award, Pulitzer Prize. Um, but I kind of wanted to introduce you by talking to you about one of the themes of the evening tonight, which is community, mm -hmm. and talk to you a little bit about the communities that have helped you in your life and your work. And um, so I thought we might start with Detroit, where you were born and raised, went to Wayne State, had a community there, but probably the first community you had was your family. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, it was... Actually, you know, I, I, I've had students whose parents tried to dissuade them from becoming poets. This didn't happen in my case. Uh, I, there was kind of enthusiasm. You know, they looked it up in the dictionary. What does it mean? Uh, <laughs> my grandfather was appalled. That's true. Because he said there was a poet in his village in Russia who would come around once a week, once every two weeks, and read his new poem and expect dinner and drinks and what have you. <laughs> and he said, you know, and he, he said something to me in Yiddish, again in college, for this you went to college? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, uh, no, it works a little differently here. I don't think I convinced him. 
but he was my grandfather. And so, of course, he was, he was good to me. My mother, my mother loved poetry, and for the most part, bad poetry, uh, <laughs> which she both recited and read. And bad music, too. She liked Wagner, as I recall. She liked Wagner. Yeah, uh, yeah she <laughs> did. Uh, and to escape it, I had to find jazz, you know. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't say we were a tight family. My father died when I was five. My mother, in some ways, never quite recovered. Uh, yeah. So what was Detroit like at that time? What was the community, what was your neighborhood like? Was it, was it a tight neighborhood? Or did you feel connected to a wider community in Detroit? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think of the, my community as, uh, yeah, my neighborhood. Uh, I, don't, I don't quite know how to describe it. It was lower middle class. Uh, ethnically, it was a mixed bag. Uh, people got along. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't, you know, I mean, I, I enjoyed my neighborhood. I thought, I thought Detroit growing up, I thought it was a wonderful, wonderful place to be. Uh, they were streets lined with trees and cars. Uh, this was pre-war, and of course, when the war started, everything changed. Uh, I was growing up during the Depression, and once the war started, everybody was dressing better. The ones who weren't drafted and taken off. I mean, there was money, yeah. and everybody had a job, and everybody could get a job, and people who wanted two jobs could get two jobs. And there wasn't much to buy during the war, you know, consumer goods. Automobiles were no longer being manufactured for civilian use, so people spent money on fun. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and even as a boy of 14, 15, I would go downtown on the weekends and uh, have a hell of a lot of good fun. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we began drinking early uh, <laughs> and smoking, you know. That, well, you looked at the films and everybody was smoking, so of course that's, it was sort of obligatory. So. You know, with all of the, you know, and, I, and, I, and I, I went to dance halls, even though I danced badly. Uh, you know, there was a whole ritual on how you, how you if you were going to be a man, how you went about it. Uh, first you got in a couple of fights, even if you lost them, that was okay. <laughs> uh, and then you had to buy clothes, because if you were going to take girls out, we called them girls then. Uh, you know, the influence of Berkeley had not hit, uh, it may not have hit Detroit yet. Uh, you, know, you know, in Berkeley, if you're eight and a female, you're a woman. Uh, but, uh, it, it, these were... Six, 15, 16, 17-year-old girls. Uh, and I had, you know, I had buddies in high school, and we hung out together. We went to dance halls. Uh, we went to sort of uh, fun fairs, you know, the kind of thing where you had uh, uh, games and stuff that you contested. Uh, we went out on the lake boats. There were uh, something called a Bablo boat. Uh, which took you to a little island uh, in the middle of Lake Erie, and you uh, and you drank uh, Ohio beer. <laughs> you had a view of Cleveland, uh, <laughs> the only city in America uglier than Detroit. Uh, so, yeah, you know, we and, and there was a nice swimming pool that we went to. I mean, you know, I hung out with my buddies. Uh, so you're describing elements of a community that you had growing up. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, around that were factories and things that you wrote about in your poems, terrible places where people worked and often had to sacrifice themselves in horrible ways. But you had this community in Detroit. So I've, I've always wanted to ask you this question. What, what happened to Detroit? It's a great American city. And now you've been back there recently, I assume, You've seen what it looks like, at least downtown. I mean, it's, it's a national 
it's a national disgrace, like, like many of our great cities are. What happened was that there was, first thing, Detroit was a viciously racist city. And racism was, during my growing up, rampant, hideous. Uh, you know, I heard and read that the South was worse. Uh, but I don't know, because I wasn't there. But it was hard to imagine something worse than what I saw in Detroit. Um, from people from Michigan. And then, of course, there were... There was the, uh, the United Auto Workers, which was completely integrated and was a force for uh, decency and for workers' rights. And, uh, you know, the great... I suppose the, one of the great events of my growing up was the strike at Ford uh, and the use of goons to beat up people like Walter Ruther, uh, one of the heroes of my boyhood. Um, what went wrong, of course, was that the people who ran, who made the decisions, you know, in many ways it was just like Fresno. Uh, you had a class of people who owned everything uh, and dictated what would happen. And their regard for those who did all the work was that they were crap, stupid, lazy, what have you, yet they did all the work. Uh, so in that way, it was exactly like what you would hear in Fresno. Uh, and it didn't matter whether they were black or white. You still heard the same stories. And white Southerners were treated with total contempt. Uh, it, was a, it was an ugly scene. We had a, we had a, a virulent priest, Father Coughlin. Yeah, who every Sunday got on the radio and just spewed pure Hitler. When the U.S. entered uh, World War II, then he, he was silenced, because now he was a traitor. But up until that point, he was allowed to say, well, we believe in free speech, uh, sometimes. Uh, and Henry Ford himself was a terrible racist, and he used the races against each other, to foment difficulty among the workers. Uh, it was an ugly, ugly scene. But it was the stupidity, I suppose, of, of those who made and designed and produced those automobiles and made them so crappy mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, people began to turn to, you know, even the, the automobiles of the enemy, the Germans and the Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> I remember my brother saying to me one day, I came to see him, and I was driving. He was in Southern California, and I was driving a BMW. And he said, I actually owned a BMW once. I bought it used, but it was fine. Uh, and he said, you bought a German car. And I said, yes. And he said, as soon as I get my Leica, I'm not buying anything German. <laughs> yeah. So much for, you know. But yeah, we turned elsewhere, and of course people stopped buying them, and, and people, of course, the tax basis for Detroit vanished because white flight mm -hmm. drove everybody to the suburbs. Uh, who, everybody who had any money and could get out went to the suburbs. And, uh, and my school, Wayne University, of course, went broke and it had become Wayne State. Well, someday the state will die and it will become United States Academy of Detroit. <laughs> and then the United States will go broke and it will become the new China University. <laughs> so, you know, our theme tonight is... is uh, <laughs> our theme tonight is social isolation and... Um, the threat to democracy. Um, and there's been a lot written about social isol isolation the last three decades or more. Um, the book I looked up before coming here was a book called Bowling Alone, which uh, brought together a lot of the research in the mid-1990s on why people are um, not joining bowling clubs anymore, even though bowling is still very popular in the United States. 
So the thing that strikes me about all these books is they, they, talk, they seem to present social isolation as kind of a um, natural societal change that has occurred. The people are living in gated subdivisions because that's kind of their personal preference or they're spending time on the internet with just like-minded people because that's the way technology has changed. I hear you talking about what happened in Detroit and you're talking about forces that work to try to divide the community, to try to segment them, to try to put them in different ghettos or different hierarchies. Yeah. That's all you have to say on that? <laughs> yeah, that's what you said. Yeah. That you talked about that, and yeah. I'm saying yes, I did. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, have you got a I've, question? I've never, <laughs> I've never known you to be so quiet. Um, so uh, I'm listening. So, so, You're interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm wondering what you see in our current society that are kind of the forces of trying to break down community as opposed to build it. Because we still have strong communities in this country, all different kinds. You have a community of poets. Yeah. Um, you have a community of colleagues here in Fresno. Yeah. Um, and you have a community in Brooklyn. So you, you know as well as anybody there's still strong communities. But what do you see as like the modern father Cothlins or the, the, the forces that are trying to break down community in our country? I would say the Supreme Court. Uh, yeah. I mean, once, once you declare that a corporation is a person, you are heading toward electing money as the president. Money is over 35 years old, so it's eligible, right? Uh, God knows it belongs to both parties. It brings them together. <laughs> uh, so it could get votes and even independence except money. Uh, I, think, I think we've been flooded with so many lies uh, that we've learned to distrust each other. And, we don't, and, and it's through money that we're flooded with these lies. Uh, and we're constantly told untruths about our natures. After all, we're all quite similar. And we all belong to a human community. And yet we're constantly besieged with notions that we don't belong to a human community. We belong to a particular community. You know, we are Fresnans and we hate Bakersfield. <laughs> you know, we are Americans and we despise Canadians. You know, I mean, it's, it's this constant drumming uh, to separate us one from the other. Uh, to separate us from our, our environment. So that, you know, animals, we, we want the animals destroyed because the play, their habitats should be used for manufacturing. It's a, you know, it goes on and on. But actually, you know, we're, we're all one creation. Whatever created me or you, you know, whatever force it is, whatever miracle brought about human life also brought about all the other lives around us. And we should feel a responsibility to those other lives as we, as we feel a responsibility to our personal family. Uh, we should feel a responsibility to the human family. And, and I think if you say things like this and try to believe and act out on things like this, you're really called, you know, crazy or a radical or a communist, communist or an anarchist because you are. <laughs> you are. You are really preaching uh, a fundamental distrust of government which separates us, uh, a fundamental distrust of legality which separates us. I mean, there are all these fundamental things that are here to define us as different from creatures who are pretty much like us. And if we knew them, we might love them. So, so I'm with you on all that, but um, yeah, democracy. <laughs> <laughs> democracy. Right now, 
today is election day. We're probably going to have a turnout of maybe 35% everybody's expecting. Uh, lowest turnout for a primary, you know, in California history, possibly. We'll see. Um, how are you feeling about democracy in our country right now? Do you find it... Do you find it healthy? Do you find it evolving? Do you find it in distress? Where are you on that? It's very unhealthy. Oh, obviously, it, it, it's, it's a wreck. Uh, it is a wreck. I mean, I don't know a single individual. Oh, I take it back. I do know one who wanted us to invade Iraq. I mean, why 99% of the people I knew knew that there were no weapons of mass destruction, but the government didn't know? Of course, they knew everything. We were lied to. What do we do about it? Well, after a while, you say, well, what is there to do about it? What is there? And, that, and new laws have passed so that you know, you could be a traitor. You know, if you go like this, you could be a traitor. Uh, well, there was an article about somebody getting arrested because he came up to Cheney and said, you're an asshole. Uh, <laughs> it, it, seems like, it seems like a mild description of him. I mean, <laughs> I mean he could have said, you know, you're a murderer. Uh, you don't deserve... Yeah, you don't. I remember once I was being interviewed on the radio, and uh, this, the big New York uh, FM station. And I was asked some kind of question that, you know, is poetry ever involved in politics? I said, of course. Uh, have you expressed all of your political views? I said, no. No, I, I, I don't know how to express all of it. What is one you haven't expressed? Reagan was the president. I said, well, a man like Reagan, with that much power and so little humanity, so little, deserves to die. <laughs> when I got home, uh, <laughs> I got a call from a lawyer who who's a, happens to be a collector of my books, and he said, I think you could be protected. <laughs> <laughs> because you didn't threaten him. You said, yeah, well, I, yeah, I said a man like that. <laughs> uh, he said, you're very close, be careful. Yeah. And I said to him, I don't want you warning me. You know, I'm chicken shit enough without you warning me. Just let me do what I have to do. And if I get in trouble, I'll get in trouble. Uh, and I felt, I felt that way. I didn't want the guy warning me. That is the way I felt. I, you know, when you see these monstrosities, uh, you, do get, you do get ill. So, but to the issue of healthy democracy. Healthy democracy? Healthy democracy. So I, I wonder if your perspective... Oh, there's a myth, yeah. There's a myth that, you know, that when I was a boy, oh, my God, FDR was the president, and this was a healthy democracy. Oh, come on. It was different, but it wasn't healthy. It was. I mean, it was a bought government too. I mean, you know, was Will Rogers saying what did he say about Congress? Best Congress money can buy. <laughs> so can I push back on you a little yes, bit? Yes, certainly. I, you need. I mean, to. <laughs> the thing that strikes me—I agree with pretty much everything you just said—but I wonder about the perspective. So, you know, you are capable throughout your career, pretty much saying whatever you thought yes. in almost any audience, yes. including right after you were named Poet Laureate and you said incredible things about our president yes. <laughs> and members of Congress. Yeah. Yes. And, um, it was fun. Yeah. <laughs> so, and as you're well aware, heroes of yours like Lorca, when they said what they thought in Spain, they were hauled out of their home and they were executed. You live in a place where you can say what you think, where you can try to engage people, you can try to get people to think, get them to feel. So 
Isn't that sign of at least a somewhat healthy democracy? Well, it's a hell of a lot healthier than, you know, Spain under Franco. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. A ringing endorsement from Bill of Yeah. Better than Franco. It is. <laughs> yes. California today is, uh, hey, I can live here and say all these things. I agree. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's healthy in that regard. You can express yourself. Yeah. Yeah. You wish the... the one wishes that the, it were possible to elect people who would act out our desires, our needs, mm-hmm. our vision of what America could be. You know, Walt Whitman's vision, the poets, William Blake's vision of America. There's nobody, there's nobody running on the William Blake party. You know, <laughs> and, you know the innocence and experience party. You know. <laughs> so... Don't we have to take some responsibility for the fact that our society is not as engaged in electing those kind of people? I mean, doesn't does it? I mean, I agree with you on the Supreme Court, and I agree with you. I mean, they come from this elite of this country that has run things forever. Mm-hmm. But don't we have some responsibility to be engaged, to go out and vote, to, to, you know, I mean, we elected an African American president the last time around. Certainly not a perfect one, but that was a, an important moment for this country. We should have more important moments. Why don't we get more involved? Who says we don't? <laughs> Who says we don't? Look, I'm a poet. Mm-hmm. I'm a writer. What I do is write. If my writing has a huge influence, I mean, dozens of people read my books. <laughs> <laughs> So certainly, and all the views that I've expressed are there. And so there must be dozens of people who are voting differently now. But the only people who read me already agree with me. You know, know, I mean, you can imagine in the boardrooms. Uh, (laughs) Have you read Levine's new book? (laughs) You're fired. (laughs) Yeah, come on. Why don't we? I mean, there are people here, I see them in the audience, who've worked very hard to try to make this a better society, who've tried to get the vote out, who've done this and done that, and in many cases changed things. Yeah. Hey, your mom was elected here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, in one of your poems, you... Um, Only one? <laughs> uh, I have to say I haven't read many of them because they put me to sleep. No. <laughs> No, um, I, I know I was going to ask you to read a different poem, but I was reading this one today called Old World in your, your latest book. And I, would you want to read that? It's short. Oh, yeah, sure. Because I want to talk to you about it. Okay. Okay. Glad to talk about it. Uh, old World. On the train from Copenhagen to Helsingor, a tiny, deformed woman jerked on my sleeve until I stopped reading and looked up. You will see there ahead the Royal Deer Park, she said, and pointed over my shoulder to the manicured acres of startling green that streamed by. Her cheeks, though powdered and rouged, looked dry as parchment. Even her little darting tongue seemed too red, made up. In your land, you have not this, she asked. Speaking slowly, still caught up in my novel, I explained that in my country, we had no kings or queens and therefore no royal parks. Exactly, she said, and her white-gloved hand abruptly closed my book. Here in my kingdom, you must not read. You must Look. I have never read that aloud. I'm stunned by its beauty. (laughs) (laughs) So, so there's a couple of, there's several different things going on with that poem, but one of them is 
a return to a theme that I've seen in many of your poems and many of your public comments is that uh, too often we go through life asleep or not awake, not alert. And so your poem is about this rather noble passenger on a train telling you to close the book and look around. Yeah. Yeah, it's also about her impudence. Uh, that she, she could feel she could just close my book. That she's older than I, and in some countries we, we have great respect for the old, so, uh, and I grew up respecting the old, so she felt safe that she could say and do what she wanted to say and do. And even though I was not young, I was probably, because it does grow out of a particular experience, I was probably 50 uh, or even more, but she was probably my age now, 80 or something. And, and she felt, you know, she also recognized right away that I was a visitor, either from the United States or Mars, but <laughs> some, someplace very foreign. She saw I was reading a, a book in English, uh, so she, I think she probably assumed I was either American or English. I remember I was wearing a, an English raincoat. She may have thought I was English. And often, you know, a foreigner, like a Dane, could mistake you. They wouldn't, they wouldn't pick up on the differences in speech between an American and a, an Englishman. But, uh, yeah, what I was struck by was her impudence, which I admired. I loved it. I thought... Boy, when I get to be her age, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do that. And so what but happened? You know, but you know, I want to say what does happen to me. At my age now, on trains, and the trains I use the most are subway trains. It's rare that someone doesn't get up and give me his or her seat. And the other day, oh, three weeks ago or so, a young pregnant black woman offered me her seat and I said I looked at her she was very pregnant I thought no 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 <laughs> your need is greater I, I played Philip Sidney Sir Philip Sidney no your need is greater than mine <laughs> and she sat back down so a guy got up and gave me a seat I mean it's incredible mm -hmm. New York is is one of the friendliest cities in the world I think mm -hmm. extraordinarily friendly so um, I wanted you to read another poem, and this is kind of more closer to home. Um, you up for it? If it's the last one, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I promise. Okay. But it's one that, you know, that speaks to this place. So. Oh, yes. Our Valley. By the way, you can find this book uh, <laughs> 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 on Amazon. And, and, yeah, nothing I have to explain because you all share this experience with me. Our valley. We don't see the ocean, not ever. But in July and August, when the worst heat seems to rise from the hard clay of this valley, you could be walking through a fig orchard when suddenly the wind cools and for a moment, you get a whiff of salt. And in that moment, you can almost believe something is waiting beyond the Pacheco Pass. Something massive, irrational, and so powerful, even the mountains that rise east of here have no word for it. You probably think I'm nuts, saying the mountains have no word for ocean. But if you live here, you begin to believe they know everything. They maintain that huge silence we think of as divine. A silence that grows in autumn when snow falls slowly between the pines and the wind dies to less than a whisper and you can barely catch your breath because you're thrilled and terrified. You have to remember, this isn't your land. It belongs to no one. Like the sea you once lived beside and thought was yours. 
Remember the small boats that bobbed out as the waves rode in and the men who carved a living from it only to find themselves carved down to nothing? Now you say, this is home. So go ahead, worship the mountains as they dissolve in dust. Wait on the wind, catch a scent of salt. Call it our life. Thank you. So there's a line in there that's a little different than Woody Guthrie. So Woody, of course, saying, this land is our land. You're saying, you have to remember, this isn't your land. What's the point you're, you're making there? Yeah, but you haven't completed the thought. It belongs to no one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about in a profound sense there's no such thing as private ownership especially of something like land mm-hmm. how can you buy and sell something that you had no part in creating it belongs to the earth it belongs to in other words to all of us mm-hmm. it's a denial of it's you can't buy the sea. That's why I use the image of the sea. You, you, you can't say, I own this sea. Those men thought they owned it, and look what happened to them. Mm-hmm. That grew out of a living in a, a fishing village in southern Spain. And seeing men, I was about 40, and seeing men my own age who looked 70, you know, due to the difficult work they did, how little they had to eat. Mm-hmm. Uh, There's also a sense of kind of geologic time at the end of that poem. Mountains as they dissolve into dust. Well, that's thanks to uh, our automobile traffic <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh, you know, the lack of any governance in keeping our air pure. So, yeah, it's, it's an, we're destroying them. Mm-hmm. It wasn't their choice to dissolve in dust. That was our choice. Mm-hmm. So I am suggesting we've been terrible stewards of this earth. Mm. Because we think we own it, we can do anything to it. But in truth, we don't own it, and we should... Yeah, we, we should probably... Mm. I don't know if worship is too strong a word, but certainly respect and regard it and be thankful for it and try to leave it as well off as we found it. Yeah. So, fair to say, you would not have written that poem the early part of your career here. Right? I mean, th- this poem has kind of a sense of place that... You mean it's an old man's poem? <laughs> <laughs> no! No! <laughs> I'm no. saying no. it's a poem from somebody who's gotten to know this place. Oh, well. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, you know, if I say I'd settled in, in Brooklyn, you know, in 1958, which is, I'm sorry to say, when I first came here. <laughs> uh, no, I shouldn't say that. I, that was not thought, thought out. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm happy I came here because I, I made a life for myself here. Yeah. Got great students, had some fabulous friends that I made here, and fellow poets who are still here, thank God. Uh, if I'd lived in, 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 in Brooklyn and I can look across and see Manhattan, that might have taken the place of the mountains. I mean, it, I might have had the same vision as, as to ownership and, and what one worships uh, because they are these, you know, those office buildings are the great symbols of power. Uh, and and uh, look how history took away the biggest portions of it. Hmm. So one thing we haven't talked about in this issue of social isolation and social engagement is the changing media. 
So when you grew up in Detroit, there were newspapers. And maybe you didn't like the newspapers, but almost everybody read the newspapers. And then, of course, as television came along, people started to watch more TV news, and there was radio. So there's kind of like these, these instruments of information, imperfect as they were, but there was a lot of them. And it, it was a basis of, for people to engage in their community. All that, as you know, is changing right now across this country and across the world. Newspapers in decline, TV in decline, all kinds of media from record companies to everything dramatically changing. You're here in Fresno and you're in Brooklyn. How do you see that changing civic engagement and, and, and people being involved in their communities? You left out one thing uh, when you were giving the list of, of media, and that was magazines, especially Life magazine. Uh, the photographs in Life magazine were, for me, I think the most powerful thing week after week that I viewed. You know, they were some of the great Magnum the photographers who... who joined Magnum, that big coalition of photographers. And, and there was, a, you know, like, the articles were often crap. Uh, it was Henry Luce, kind of a right-wing jerk, who owned it. Uh, but those photographers, so there'd be articles about the Spanish Civil War. But the photographs by Robert Kappa told you so much about what was going on that the writers did not tell you. And, and the same thing happened in, in World War II. The photographs were there to tell you w what the world was really like. It, it was an amazing thing. In, to go back to your question, in New York, in Brooklyn, I feel, you know, I mean, we have a great newspaper. We have the New York Times. So I feel in touch with what's going on in the city constantly in touch, and we have a great radio station, uh, WNYC, FM and AM. It's on 24 hours a day, and, and we have great jazz stations. We have everything. So I feel very in touch with the life of the city. And then, you know, I don't work anymore, except I write, but I, you, know, you can't write all day long. So if you want to feel what the city's like, you just get in the subway and get out somewhere and... and which is quite exciting sometimes to do when the weather's good, or my wife and I walk across the Brooklyn Bridge and we see, you know, everybody is coming this way, going that way. Uh, I go to JNR and 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 look at the look at the CDs and occasionally buy one. I go to Fountain Pen Hospital. I mean, <laughs> there is such a place, yes. Uh, there's a long line of poets waiting with their pens. <laughs> help, help, help. <laughs> I, can't seem to, I can't seem to get a poem. I think it's this pen. <laughs> they give you a number two pencil and say, go home, schmuck. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I, I have a much stronger sense because of the New, partly because of the New York Times and partly because of this great, the great radio stations of exactly what's going on in the city there and what I might be interested in, and, uh, you know. And I, for example, I'll call in to those stations and talk to people. I did that once in Fresno. I called in, but that was when Charles Amerkanian had a thing on KPFA. And he had one of my old, he had a former student of mine on, Kermit Lynch, who's gone into the wine business, but, but whose dream was to be a rock and roll musician. And they started talking about me. They were both my, had been both, both had been my students. And they were saying untrue things. <laughs> no, they were, they were very generous. Uh, but inaccurate. <laughs> it was really the only way to be generous. Uh, no, but in New York, I'll call in. But there's so many people calling in, nobody ever listens to you. <laughs> you so has the internet changed your life at all? I mean, I know you have email. Uh, yeah, it has. You're, you're not on Facebook, though, yet? 
Oh yeah, I am. You but, are? Yeah. I uh, my publisher asked me to to get on Facebook when I became the poet laureate, but no, but on middle June I'll get off. Uh, I mean, there are about three hundred people who have asked to be my friends, and I know about four of them. Uh, you know, I I, I never have a look. a few I, more tonight, I think. Yeah. No. 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 Uh, you don't you don't tweet though, right? No, no. No tweeting. I if I. I think I understand what you're saying, and I don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, the internet has been great because, you know, I'm in touch with a lot of poets who are my age. You know, like, say, Galway Canal or Gerald Stern. They're both older than I am. And, you know, we don't travel that much. Especially those two don't travel that much, especially Galway lives up in Vermont, so I can keep in touch with him. And he, can, he sends me his poems. And, you know, I, I fool around with them and, and send them back with my comments. He asks for them, I give them to him. Uh, there are a number of poets who, who I, you know, I mean, here in Fresno, I've got, I've got Pete Everwine and Chuck Hansel's check. Uh, but when I'm in New York, but I'm sitting here in Fresno, I also have these other people. Uh, Tom Slay is a guy that uh, a younger poet who, who I think is a terrific uh, reader. Uh, I also have my wife Franny, who's a very good reader. But you know, you can't ask your wife too often to say this is a terrible poem, <laughs> because you know then you say something uh, you know, about her cooking or something. <laughs> and, and the day is ruined. Uh, so, uh, but she's actually a very good reader. But it's it's wonderful to, it's brought us to closer together. For example, we wanted to get together, all of us, uh, at a, and we we had to find a day, and it included the poet C.K. Williams, who's at Prince, lives in Princeton, New Jersey, and Jerry lives in in, in New Jersey. Yeah, he lives also in New Jersey. Uh, and Canal is up in uh, Vermont. And we had to find a day. Well, it wasn't that hard. We found a day and we found a place and we met. And, you know, we spent an afternoon together reading each other's poems and lying about them uh, and encouraging each other. Actually, actually, we were, I think we were all quite candid and it was incredibly useful. I'd never done anything like this. That's great. So we've got a couple minutes left. Um, you wind up your poet laureateness in a few weeks or something. We don't know how long. Yeah. But, and then you're planning, or I guess you already are, writing, right? You're, yes. You're, you're, yes. Right now, got... I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, right today I'm working on an essay. You won't believe this for the State Department. Uh, but I, I have the freedom to say what I want. Uh, what are they going to do with this essay? Publish it. What, uh, are they going to drop it from planes into Afghanistan? Or <laughs> no, it goes into a CIA manual. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, it's about poetry. Uh, it's about Amer the state of American poetry. And uh, they have publications where they, you know, the state of music, the state of everything, you know, every, they've sent me copies of, through an email, uh, of the kind of thing they do. It, it, you know, they, they want like a thousand words to describe what the guy actually asked for was to describe and explain the changes, changes in American poetry since you began to publish, and today, from 1955, 54, whatever it was, to now. So it's a, it's a very specific subject. 1,000 words? I can do it in 10. <laughs> <laughs> I can do it in three. Well. It got worse. <laughs> <laughs> well, I look, I look forward to reading that. I, I really do. Uh, let's give a hand for Philip. <laughs> Thank you.
you were talking about democracy and, um, and community, and I think what's happening in Wisconsin is uh, something really positive along those lines, where the people are really getting together and doing something. What do you think about it? Well, I'm hoping that, that you know, they bounce this guy. Uh, he, has this, he has the same name as a guy who once published me. Walker. Scott Walker. Yeah, yeah he founded uh, Grey Wolf Press, but not uh, the other Scott Walker, the good Scott Walker. <laughs> and he got thrown out of the press. He founded it, he built it, and then he mismanaged it. He, he made the mistake of making it a kind of corporation, <laughs> and then they voted him out. Uh, <laughs> So I hope something similar happens to this guy, that he's... Uh, yeah, I think what they did was terrific, yeah. I, even if it's a failure, and it probably will be, it shows those people that they, they do have power and they can scare people. Uh, and so it's, it's a very hopeful sign. Phil, this is Moss. Uh, thinking of the Valley and Valley stories, what do you think would capture the Valley today in, as, through a poet's point of view? I don't, I don't think there's a single thing, Moss. I, I think, you know, there are a bunch of poets in this room, you know, John Weinberg and Dixie and Chuck, uh, I saw, and there are many others who aren't here. I, I just saw David Dominguez, not here, but Sunday. I think each one of them would have a different view of what it was, what most symbolizes life in the valley? What, what event, object, person that you would build a story or a poem around? Uh, I know, you know, I have built poems around uh, what I might call archetypal figures that I've encountered here. Uh, I remember once wandering, getting lost in the valley, uh, taking the wrong road, and <clears throat> and I, I wasn't quite sure where I was, and I had to get someplace. So I pulled over, and, and there was a guy in a field digging, and I wasn't sure he spoke English. He looked, he looked <clears throat> Hispanic. He did speak English. Uh, and he was burying a, burying a seagull. Uh, it was over on the west side. And, and we, we, we talked for a while. He, he showed me how the hell to get out of there, where to go. But there was something about the fact that he was digging in the earth, that he was a farmer, that, and that he, he was touched, saddened by the death of this bird, and he was giving it a proper burial. I, I thought... I and he appears in a poem of mine. And I happen to be in, in an area where a wonderful poet who's no longer alive once lived, Larry Levis. It was, in, it was sort of like Larry Levis' land. And, and I thought, in a way, I'm entering Larry, uh, Larry's poetry. If he were here, he would write a better poem about this event. And when I stopped next... <coughs> I happened to see two guys, uh, young guys, teasing a woman in a 7-Eleven. I mean, good-naturedly teasing them. She was very attractive. And, but they, they weren't being rude or anything. They were just having fun. And I thought, they could, that could be Larry at age 16, you know. Uh, it was a very moving experience. And for me, it was, it was, a, it was a totally, totally a, a San Joaquin experience. I wouldn't get it anywhere else in the world. Uh, and, and, and so, of course, I put it in a poem. Yeah, oh. my name is Ron Martin. And I was just wondering if you had anything about this, to say about the health of democracy in the community in Fresno, particularly under our mayor, Ashley Swearingen, who, even though she's entrusted with uh, some unpleasant tasks of dealing with the economic downturn and cutting things down, but uh, I, she had did such a wonderful press conference on TV. She gave thoroughly logical answers for an hour, and uh, 
how has Fresno Democracy, under her leadership and other events like Art Hop and so forth, that bring the community together? Reagan gave great press conferences too. <laughs> uh, I, I, I really, you know, I really don't know what she's done. I mean, I, I still read the New York Times, <laughs> and she's never in there. Uh, so I, I don't know what she's done, but but people I like don't seem to like her, and so I trust, I trust my friends. I think she's, but if she's, a, if she's an astute politician, of course she can give a good press conference. Uh, you know. I mean, George W. Bush was making the world safe for George W. Bush. <laughs> but he said it was for democracy. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I, I, I can't comment on her. I don't know who the hell she is. <laughs> What, what about, though, just the general state of civic engagement in Fresno compared to other places you've lived and worked? I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. I'm not interested. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it's a factor of old age. Uh, Wall Stevens, you know. Uh, being, being a part is an exertion that declines. That's how he puts it in a, in a poem of his old age. Being, being a part is an exertion that declines. And after a while, you know, I, guess, I guess I've lost interest because I have seen the city become uglier and uglier and its growth more stupid and stupid over the years. I have seen uh, those, you know, the developers get their way no matter what happens. And they have made this place, you know, they've taken Los Angeles as their model, as though it were Rome or Florence uh, or Paris. And, and let, us build, uh, let us build a Los Angeles without an ocean, you know. <laughs> uh, you know. You know, we can have a swamp over here for people to, you know, Drowning. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's such a mindless process that one views that you know that one sort of says, "Oh, screw it." If sooner or later they'll make it uninhabitable, and we'll still live here. <laughs> Hi, Daniel Berg. Thanks for coming out. You painted a somewhat dark picture of the world for us. What are you hopeful about? Oh, I love life. I mean, I hope that came through. Uh, my humor, my sense of humor, and my love for people and people's affection for me makes me see the world as a place I don't want to leave. I mean, after all, I'm physically getting you know, more of a wreck every week. Uh, and, and still I'm clinging to this life because uh, I love it. I, I, I love people, especially the people. There's so many wonderful people here in Fresno and in New York and wherever I go. And I've been traveling a lot. And there's a wonderful spirit in America. And, you know, and occasionally we do the right thing. Like we did elect Obama. Uh, and, and I thought for a moment we had leaped over that hideous valley of death and racism. But then an hour after he was elected, <laughs> you know, a third of the population said he wasn't a citizen. He was born in, you know, Timbuktu or God knows where. And, and, this, and the election, let's call it off, etc. So, but, but we did elect him. And that was a, that was a huge step forward. Uh, and, and if we could do that, we could go beyond that. And uh, there was an optimism in the country at that moment that was quite, quite delicious, quite rare. I, I don't think I'd seen it, well, since JFK was elected. Uh, and he was a disappointment. He was a great disappointment. Uh, I, guess, I guess the only president that wasn't to me a disappointment was Harry Truman. Until until the dropping of the bombs. Uh, he, he, Roosevelt, well, you know, he did some terrible things. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
if you want to know, if you want a, a poet's touch of, of it, you could read uh, a book by Lawson and Nada, Before the War, and, and poems since, uh, the poems of a, of a boy who grew up in, uh, in one of our concentration camps. Uh, but that book exists, so that story is told, and it's part of our history. Uh, it's part of our heritage. Uh, and Lawson is now the Poet Laureate of Oregon. Uh, so, you know, I mean, things change and they do get better. Uh, I never thought we would see a black president. I never thought there would be states in the United States that would vote for gay marriage. Uh, I, you know, I mean, these were things I thought, oh, Americans will never get there. Well, they did. We are there. So... With all of you know, the troubles we have, we, there is a kind of progress. So I'm, I'm sanguine about, about America. You know that word, sanguine? <laughs> I thought I'd drop one that was... You know, <laughs> show you I was a professor once. <laughs> Thank you, Phil. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah.